Good afternoon. You're on the panel ANZ National Friday afternoon. And Ed Amon, Linda Hallinan with me today. Now, an update on the Friday afternoon traffic in Auckland. Brigham Creek, Brigham Creek Road is closed between the Northwestern Motorway uh, and Joseph McDonald Drive for a serious crash investigation. Detours are in place. And I think the Auckland Harbour Bridge is looking pretty uh, pretty uh, chocker as well. Did you come across the Harbour Bridge? No, I came the other direction, yeah. and it's chocker all the way from Manukau in both directions. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, take care and travel wisely. Uh, meanwhile, around two and a half New Zealand travellers are now stuck in Sydney and face having to stay in managed isolation for two weeks if they return while the bubble remains paused. Sydney's COVID outbreak shows no sign of abating with 44 new cases today and the state premier has hinted at an extended lockdown. Uh, the COVID-19 response minister Chris Hipkins announced uh, today this afternoon that uh, return green flights from New South Wales meant to repatriate people were due to start at 11.59pm tonight and they won't be resumed until the government was confident the outbreak has been contained. The earliest flight to come in would be from Tuesday. Returnees who do go into managed isolation from New South Wales will not have to pay. Uh, if you've been affected by this, you and or any whānau across the Tasman, why don't you get in touch with us, 2101, uh, and tell us uh, your situation there. must be very uh, frustrating, uh, to say the least. Uh, and, uh, look, uh, a lot of feedback about uh, taking your lunch. We'll uh, read out some of that later on in the programme. But here's just one. Louise says, uh, in 30 years of teaching, I took my lunch every day. There was no way you had time to go and buy lunch. You had meetings and or duty and resources to run off in your 45 minutes. Cafe, you got to be joking. Uh, Is that why teachers are always so grumpy, eh? Because they <laughs> had to bring their own lunch. Well, saving, maybe saving a little bit of money on the side too. Uh, so thank you for your feedback. Uh, do appreciate it. 2101 is the number to get us on. Or you can email us, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Low-income New Zealanders speak about life during lockdown. New Zealand's lockdown was challenging for low-income people. They were scared, there was a sense of isolation, but they were also resourceful, resilient and complementary of the government, the study shows. Published in the New Zealand Medical Journal today, Life During Lockdown, a qualitative study of low-income New Zealanders experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic. It explores closely the experiences of 27 low-income Kiwis and their advice to government about addressing future pandemics. The senior author was Dr Amanda Kalsvig from the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago and the co-author was Professor Louise Signal, uh, also from uh, the Department of Public Health, University of Otago, Wellington. Professor Signal, kia ora, welcome to the programme. So there was quite a bit of fear around this virus for these New Zealanders. I see, uh, for example, one participant describing it as, quote, like a war, really, with an invisible enemy. Yes, that's right. I think people were um, very frightened and felt uh, incredibly isolated during lockdown and suffered quite a lot of mental distress. I think these are things that all of us as New Zealanders uh, can have some sense of, of fear and worry, but for this group of people it was particularly poignant. And there was a real fear also around infecting vulnerable relatives in their bubble. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So what we found was the um, the people were very complimentary about the government's approach. They were most supportive of going hard and going early. They were 
saw themselves very much as part of the team of five million and um, appreciated the fact that it was not only protecting them, but that they were protecting their loved ones and other people. And it, I mean, some you spoke to, they said, look, uh, it really severely restricted their activities. Some not even venturing as far as their mailbox, uh, Louise. Well, some, of course, some uh, of the low-income people will be on low incomes because of uh, ill health Mm. or they'll be with people that they're caring for. So for them, it may have been even more difficult. But a lot of them also found that the fact that we could go out and go for a walk was absolutely critical to maintaining their their well-being. And that's probably something that we as New Zealanders have been lucky. Uh, It's not been the case in some of the much more crowded cities in the world. Yes, yeah, so, um, great research. I read through uh, the articles and the news around it. Um, it does seem that people went through a pretty hard time, these 27 families, uh, during the lockdown period. But in the end, there's a lot of resilience and positivity shown as well. What, what do you think are the reasons behind that? Well, sadly, um, low-income New Zealanders have quite difficult lives anyway. Uh, They often have major trauma that they've endured. Uh, They often don't have a lot of money. They often spend a lot of time at home. So for them, for many of them, they said this was um, in some ways sadly not much different from their life as, as usual. And it certainly was a great pleasure to have the opportunity to speak to these people. And they really gave us some time um, just in June and July last year, just immediately after that very difficult period. Linda, what do you think? I think, I mean, that was the thing that struck me as saddest is the fact that people were saying, well, well look, we we're already feeling isolated. And I, mean, I think that's a good reminder for everybody else too because I remember those early days. It was. It was, it was scary and it we was, worried wasn't for it? the health of people. Yeah. And it was odd being, you know, her home alone all in quiet and not being able to see your neighbours and even just basic things like that. But I think it's, yeah, it's a good wake-up call just to remind people that, you know, people who are having a miserable time, it's much more miserable, isn't it, when mm. it's a collective experience that you can't do anything and- about. And they, uh, we asked them about the, their view of the government's response, and we were very reassured that they were actually highly complimentary of the government's response. And, and you can see that in a number of ways. The health service um, really had to change how it did business, and it managed to do that relatively quickly. These people were often relying on that service quite a lot, um, and so sometimes the innovations were good, like the teleconsults that we've, many of us have now done, um, but also the fact that um, some, for some people and for some uh, medical conditions, that's just not going to be appropriate. Uh, one woman said, um, she has a partner, and she said that uh, there were a few scared moments because of the lockdown, the access to hospital wasn't that easy. So, you know, there was really good things that we did, um, but also there's things that we could probably improve on. And certainly in the area of mental health support uh, seems to be an area where people's advice to the government in future would be to try and make sure that that's really um, strong. The other places that they uh, did really appreciate the increased benefits, and some people suggested that perhaps the benefits should always stay at that level. And I'm, I'm a, I do agree with them on that point. Um, benefits are um, uh, perilously low and difficult to live on. Um, but uh, nevertheless, those increases were really good. And, and we saw that here in New Zealand in a way that we may not have seen that in other countries. Right. Uh, and you say this, this is the, the, a key risk. This is a key risk in any public health crisis is increasing existing inequities. So this, uh, this survey of 27 uh, people this kind of further expands and highlights that, doesn't it? 
That's right. I mean, it's important that we um, protect our most vulnerable people because we know they fear worse in any kind of crisis, public health crisis or in the earthquakes or so on. Um, but, you know, according to the people that we talked to, uh, New Zealand really did very well uh, during this, this uh, epidemic, but obviously we could do, during this pandemic, but obviously we could do better. They were still concerned about border issues, and we see that playing out over the last six or eight months, um, that's still the basics need to be dealt with and they probably, the, the benefits just were still not enough to do that and we saw that huge surge in um, the use of food banks and City Mission, uh, iwi up and down the country were incredibly quick to respond and um, provide services to supplement um, the, the welfare that people were getting. Can I-, I think the other thing, the other thing is they also appreciated the COVID wage subsidy that was really important for those people that lost their jobs um, so I had a, I had a follow-up question around uh, the research. So the, the uh, lower-income families that were included in the research, um, so how um, you can say how low was the income? Is it people who were uh, in emergency housing or they were just people who were living in rented houses? And um, So what was the criteria of selection in terms of these 27 families? Uh, they had to be some of the poorest people in our country, okay. um, so high, high deprivation. And uh, we were very lucky to be able to recruit in part through the City Mission in Christchurch, who were fantastic in providing some support. And uh, in Auckland, we also recruited, um, but from a wider range of, of um, avenues. Uh, so one of the things that our study, one of the risks our study runs is that it under-reports very severe hardship so there will be people who suffer even more than the people that we spoke with and we weren't able to capture them. So I think that if it's whatever they're saying here, uh, it's pro- it's going to have been worse for some of our most vulnerable. Good to have you on the programme. Uh, that is Professor Louise Signal from the Department of Public Health, uh, University of Otago, Wellington. So that's a study out today in the New Zealand Medical Journal. Uh, it's called Life During Lockdown, a study of low-income New Zealanders and their experiences uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ed Amon and Linda Hallinan with me this afternoon on the panel uh, NZ National. MPs have launched an inquiry into what has been described as New Zealand's truancy crisis. Official figures in May showed more than 60,000 students classified as chronically absent, missing at least three days of school every fortnight, and almost 40% of pupils not going to school regularly, reports RNZ's political editor, Jane Patterson. Parliament's Education Committee says school attendance has been dropping since 2015 across, quote, all regions, all ethnicities, all deciles, and all year levels. It'll investigate the long-term trends, look at what has worked elsewhere. And the inquiry will be completed by the end of November. With us is Liam Rutherford, the president of NZEI Te Roa, which is New Zealand's largest education union. Liam, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to talk to you again. Good to have you on again. A long-standing issue, this one, Liam. Do you welcome an inquiry? Yeah, we certainly do. I mean, it's such a complex issue. Uh, the more light that we get shone on the issue, uh, the more chance that we've got that support, uh, which is greatly needed, uh, will be able to follow suit. And so um, we certainly welcome the inquiry. Yeah, because from what I've read, and we've done, we've had this uh, issue on, uh, uh, you know, a little bit on the panel, um, 
quite complicated, but Paul Goldsmith says, look, currently three out of five kids in New Zealand are attending school regularly. He views that as shocking, a shocking statistic. What is the scale of the problem if you talk to principals and staff around the country, Liam? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's too helpful to get caught up on how the ministry uh, goes about labelling these things. What we can all agree on is that across the board, uh, truancy is something that's increasing. And teachers, support staff and principals have got... Uh, they have to be able to put in to be... They, they need kids turning up to school to be able to um, teach them. And so uh, we need solutions. So... Um my question around this is that um, it, it has been happening for quite a while. And uh, so have there been previous efforts, uh, for instance, reports that are developed by the Ministry of Education in the past or school institutions uh, or the unions? Have they looked into it as well? Has this been worked on in the past? Because it seems from reading about it, it's been uh, going on since 2015 or even before. So, I mean, schools are complex places and we're constantly juggling a number of issues uh, all at the same time. Um, I think what we do have access to is um, better data now, uh, which is why we have seen the spotlight uh, being shone on truancy. Uh, there was a lot of conversation around this being the response to COVID, uh, but we just know that that's not borne mm. out in the data at all. Um, what we do have, though, is um, pockets of good practice around the country where some of the solutions lie. And so it's encouraging to hear that the inquiry is going to be looking at that. And in a lot of these good examples, what we see is schools being put in a position where they can dedicate staffing to be able to um, build those one-on-one -on -one relationships with the families. I mean, for me, that highlights that this isn't an easy fix. Uh, that actually it is going to take dedicated staffing to unpack some of the reasons that are stopping children getting to school uh, and to be able to put fixes in place. Linda? Well, it's a shame, isn't it, because it also shows that schools are no longer really that, you know, that hub of the community where everybody feels, I guess, safe and welcome and, you know, you've got kids who aren't turning up at all. I mean, it's poverty, it's transport, isn't it? It's not having lunches, it's all of those things all combined. But, yeah, those numbers are absolutely horrific. I mean, if you've got 40% of kids only attending regularly, that's, you know, 60% falling through the cracks. Give us an it? example, Liam. What, 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 might, what might make some young person not turn up to school? I'm just thinking of my own experience here mm. and... Uh, taking a day off school or try and being truant would scare the living daylights uh, out of me because if mum and dad ever found out, whew, I don't know what would happen. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I spend most of my time in the primary sector and so um, a child just deciding not to go to work, uh, not to go to school um, isn't as uh, significant as I would imagine it is yeah. in secondary. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like you, that was certainly my experience at school. I mean, um, we know that uh, through Pawautanga, uh, which was an independent review into staffing in the primary sector, um, it went out of its way to highlight that um, it isn't just the complexities of uh, the complexities that schools are dealing with now. It's also the changing shift in societal expectations of what schools are meant to do. And so as a result, we are constantly putting out fires all over the place. Uh, and, and I think a really good example of where we need greater levels of staffing and resourcing is in that learning support place because it must be... Uh, you could imagine parents being put in a question. Uh, you could imagine parents being put in a position uh, to question whether or not it's worth sending their child to school mm. if their needs aren't being met.
You yeah. almost need to have um, follow-up research done at the level of the previous guest, you know, where you're actually individually asking families why it is that they can't get right. their kids to school without the judgment. Yeah, my, my experience uh, was that I didn't attend a year nine and ten in Pakistan completely. I just hung outside. The main reason was really? that... Yeah, yeah, I didn't attend a couple of other guys. We used to just hang outside. Uh, the main reason was that the, it was not challenging enough and, and there was some, some bullying issues as well. But mm. uh, they got me back into school by uh, I was then in the cricket team and then I loved going into the school and I would wait for the end of the day to go into practice etc so that kind of changed my view on on schooling so it's it's correct that it's such a complex thing people don't go to school not just because they're lazy mm. it's there's several reasons that people can't make it to school but also look how much more um housing transiency would have increased in, you know, in our lifetimes. You know, I went to the same school my entire childhood. That's quite unusual these days. And yeah. certainly if you don't own your own home and we know that housing, you know, ownership is falling and you're moving around a lot more and you have to change schools, these things all have massive just, impacts on yeah. kids at school. Just a final thought on that, Liam, before you go, because that, uh, what uh, Edamon just said there, I think that's been borne out in research, eh? Uh, if school is not um, challenging uh, the person or indeed there might be bullying issues, they are two of other factors that contribute to truancy. Yeah, I mean, there's one particular example of a school in Northland that uh, post-COVID um, employed somebody whose job it was to get all kids back to school. And it was the particular skill set that this person had around somebody that could go into homes and build relationships that was the real value. The issue, though, was that that was funded out of a short-term COVID relief fund. And so now that that has come and gone, uh, schools are being put in positions and making tricky decisions around whether or not they've got the luxury of additional staffing like that. Okay. And I think one of the things that we end up struggling with is we lose sight of the fact that we're a country of only 5 million. I mean, we're a medium-sized city, really. Yet we've got such different responses to these issues. And uh, I think some more uniform staffing across the system to target specific issues would go down a real treat. Liam Rutherford there, President of the NZEI. Kia ora, Liam. Thank you again uh, for your time. Uh, now, why secondary school kids skip school? No money for bus, kept home to look after parents or siblings, light parents who are out at work all day being bullied, can't do the work, don't think anyone cares anyway. Uh, another one here, my son missed 40% of his school days last year because of depression. Schools need to list mental health as a reason and not just medical. Um, so quite a, quite a varied uh, responses I, here I on this it, one. I mean, it's one of those things where it's easy to go, ah, oh, you know, blame the parents, they should be getting their kids to school. Well, but, you know, quite a few people do. Some, yeah, yeah. What about parental <coughs> responsibility, few people say? But what it, about but that? But it's such a more complex issue, isn't it? Like, I don't think anybody deliberately goes, oh, you know what, nah, I don't care if the kids go to school yeah. or not. That would be a very minute number of people in comparison to all of the other issues you've just yeah. said, you know, like the fact that some people can't afford to get their kids to school. Yeah. And, I mean, that's parental. Someone says, yeah, someone says yeah, back in my day, there were consequences. Yeah. Well, yeah, we used well to get back paid, in my day as well, there were consequences. Uh, and, um, I mean, as an expert skyver, so you can... My parents were totally <laughs> into sending me, and then there were, there were consequences, everything. But I found ways... People, I mean, kids are... Um, intuitive, they are creative, 
there's always ways to not attend Look, school. So we, we used to bunk a, off and yeah. get in the car. We'd sign in and Pukekohe <laughs> High School. We'd sign in and then me and my mates would bunk off for the day. We'd come up to Auckland, go to a movie. Yeah. We, we went to all you, of the, you wouldn't. We went to all the film festival films, like you know June, July. That was a great, great couple of months in, in seventh form. And then you get back to school again at the end of the day, yeah. and nobody seemed to be any the wiser. It was a really big school. Did your parents yeah. find out? No, no, of course not. They thought I was a good kid. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, have you have you told them? No, well, it made no difference anyway. That's yeah. the thing. Like, actually, you know, I think that's the thing. I think that's part of being a teenager. But we're not really talking about teenagers bunking off, are no. we? We're talking about kids at primary school yeah. and intermediate, yeah. you know, Systemic routinely issue. not going yeah. to school, which is, you know, actually very difficult thing mm. to overcome for their futures. Uh, Bruce says, uh, Wallace, I'm from Pacifica culture, with both parents working at force to the eldest children to look after the others if they're sick. Mm. Uh, that is indeed very true. Quite, quite a big response on this. I appreciate your feedback on it. Thank you. 28 past four. Very, very briefly around the panel, the warehouse has revealed its most popular toy of the decade, and it is Hot Wheels, the basic toy car taking up the top spot. Uh, and the lead toy buyer, Lonica Van Engelen, saying it was down to its play value and timeless appeal. So these are really classic uh, toys. The resurgence of family games is a big theme as people spend more time together. Around the panel, what of your era? My era was one of um, Simon. Remember that, that, that Simon says, Simon, oh, yeah. Simon McGay, where you pushed the... It was a light thing. Yes, it? it was a light yeah. thing and you pushed it. That was a big thing, as well as the Magna Doodle. <laughs> See, I was scarred by never having a Barbie. Yeah. God, I wanted a Barbie. I got a Cindy. <laughs> so disappointing. <laughs> scarred me. You got a Cindy. Yeah, and you wanted a Barbie, but you I never... Desper- you know, I wanted a Barbie so desperately that in fifth form, my boyfriend bought me one for Christmas. Oh, nice. Oh, nice yeah, so I romantic. I, I, I dumped him by New Year's. But... <laughs> what was a Cindy? Cindy was like a budget Barbie, oh, got to right. say. And you knew it, and all the other kids knew it too. That's not a Barbie, you, that's a budget Barbie, that's Cindy. You bend the arm, it breaks. Probably. So, uh, the, for me, it was mainly sports of the cricket and a ball and a wickets that was uh, just for me enough. But when my uh, f- uh, father moved to the UK, and I got to visit him a couple of times, and then got hooked on Lego at that time, uh, that was an amazing, crazy situation that it was an addiction. Um, yeah. Yes, and... Other than that, um, there was not many toys, mainly sports with my brothers. That's all I did. This is growing play up cricket, in, cricket, gr- cricket. Growing up in Pakistan. In yeah. Pakistan, yes. Mm-hmm. So that was the main thing. And it's amazing to see here the simplest of the toy is the number one. All the complicated ones at the bottom, are, are they are still top ten, but the simplest is the number one. But isn't the most amazing thing now how dirt cheap all the stuff is? Like, you know, I remember when even when I first had kids, my kids are eight and ten now, and Nerf guns were like a hundred bucks. And now you can get these like rip-off ones that look exactly the same for 15 bucks and mm. so you just the kids have way me way more toys like all even on this whole list like Beyblades at number two that's quite an expensive toy I reckon the Hot Wheels takes it out because it's fairly inexpensive and yeah, you can have heaps of them it's under $10 isn't it yeah. I think yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice I one. see Barbie makes number 10, Barbie Fashionista. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a new style of Barbie. <laughs> yeah, where's, get one. where's Cindy? Yeah, she's where's not there. Where's Cindy on this? Yeah, I don't right. even think she exists anymore. Uh, look, we, I, 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 I'm, I'm go, I've got to have, I have to say to you right now, we have had quite a surprising response about fingerless gloves. <laughs> um, just See, for, Barbie would yep. never have worn those, but Cindy probably would have. Uh, Cindy in Ashburton says, never mind fingerless gloves, cold enough here to bring back leg warmers. <gasps> um and uh, fingerless gloves, fine merino made by ice gray, ice break in great colours. The best thing down here in Tiano. I think that's what I'm wearing, to be I honest. I think you are. 
indeed. <laughs> All right, you're on the panel uh, in Z National, Ed Armand and Linda Helena. It is time for the headlines.